0: Don't forget that um, this weekend, the Amazing Grace Land uh, is putting on a seminar for parents and for Sunday school teachers, and hope you're going to be a part. We can um, return to the book of Galatians, but we, um, we return to the same verse that we uh, looked at last week uh, it's verse six of uh, chapter one um, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Um, the thing that I, I'm drawing your attention to is the fact that Paul identifies, or not he mentions uh, he mentions the fact that there is a different gospel. Um, and apparently, it was uh, quite attractive, quite appealing, um, that they were quickly turned away, or they turned away so soon. And, and and just think about this, guys. Um, these were people who have been um, subject to, I guess, the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Um, Paul had brought the gospel to them, and um, and they heard it from Paul's mouth. And this gospel, this different gospel that is afoot, is so attractive that even the um, the teaching of the Apostle Paul would not um, prevent them from from embracing it. Uh, this this different gospel, this other gospel, is so attractive that it even tripped up Peter. And, you know, we're going to see later in the book where um, Paul has to confront Peter. Peter um, uh, erred when it came to just the, the rudiments of the gospel. Now, gang, you, you may recall... Um, probably not, but, um, last week I closed by reading you a fairly lengthy quote from Martin Luther. It was a letter that he wrote to his friend, the friar. Um, and, and I said to you then that, uh, Martin Luther didn't get everything right. And I wish I'd have said this last week, but I'm going to say it now. Uh, Martin Luther didn't get everything right. None of us do. One of my heroes says that, um, no man ever gets it seven over 70% right? <laughs> Um, okay, Martin Luther didn't get everything right, and we don't appeal to him, um, but he did get the gospel right. And that's what's at stake uh, in the book of Galatians, because of the, exis- the existence of this thing that, that Paul mentions a different gospel. I am appalled, says Paul, um, that you so quickly are attracted. To this, this, this different gospel. So if you're here tonight and you're a, a longtime believer and you're saying, you know, uh, you know, let's move to something that I hadn't heard before because I got that gospel thing down. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest to you that you need to really rethink that because there's another gospel that is very attractive. It's, it's even attractive to people who have been taught and trained by the Apostle Paul. So, um, whereas we don't have to get everything right, we got to get this right. So, um, that's what I'm going to try to do tonight. Uh, I think we can get through it once. I may even, when I get back, go through it again, just the same material because, um, we don't have to get everything right, but we've got to get this right. Uh, there's no wiggle room when it comes to the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I want to start tonight by another quote, but it's much briefer. In fact, it's only a uh, well, it's two sentences, I guess, but this is a quote from John Stott. John Stott wrote a book um, years ago uh, called entitled "The Cross." And in, um, gosh, I can't believe I didn't write down the page number, but it's in his chapter that's entitled The Self-Substitution of God. If, you, if, you're, if you're confused, um, find that chapter. It's, this is a quote from that chapter. And here's what he says. For the essence of sin, the essence of sin, is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. (laughs) Oh, I wish I'd have said that. Um, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. But the essence of this gospel, this essence of this salvation that we want to discuss, ladies and gentlemen, is that God substitutes himself for us. And so I'm going to remind you of that as we go, over and over and over again, because it is the essence, ladies and gentlemen, the essence is that God substitutes himself for us. Now, um, understand, what I'm trying to do is as simply and as succinctly and as clearly as I know how, um, summarize the gospel that Paul was not ashamed of. That one. That's the one that we got to get. This different one, I'll, I'll allude to it uh, as we go. Okay, guys, first of all, the gospel, uh, the real one, the gospel begins with some bad news. It, by, it begins by saying, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Um... um we are by nature sinners. And you know, guys, there is a, um, there is a, uh, a name for that doctrinal position. Everybody in Christendom believes it. Um, how about that? Um, the fact that we are by nature sinners is called original sin. Um, we sin because we're sinners, not the other way around. It's not that we have become sinners because we sinned. We came into this world, ladies and gentlemen, as sinners. And so when I mean this affects everything. I, I, um think of your children. You know, those darlings that um, you know, at age 2 begin to assert themselves and begin to um, you know, talk about mine, 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 and, and um, you know, no. And, um, and then the, the sociologist says, well, your child is just going through the terrible twos. No, ladies and gentlemen, your child is sinful. The, the scripture says foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. Your child is not going through terrible twos. Your child is doing some unpacking of the foolishness that's bound up in his heart. It's something that he brought with him, her. You didn't teach her to lie. She was born a liar. You didn't teach her to be selfish. She was born selfish. You didn't teach him to rebel. He was born a rebel. We are by nature Sinners, Adam and Eve represented the whole human race, and you and I are doing a fine job of carrying on the family tradition of rebelling against God. Guys, that's how the gospel starts. Um, Sin is our rebellious nature, to be our own god, and that's what that's what Satan appealed to in Genesis three. That nature is so, you know. You, you don't like me talking like about you like this because you you're dressed pretty and you smell good. Um, but that sinful nature is so pervasive that within three chapters of sin's entrance, this is what the Bible says about the heart of man. That every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's your heart. That's my heart. And and in its unregenerate state, ladies and gentlemen, there are no bridles on it. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil. By the way, you remember when that was said? That's Genesis chapter 6. And that's prior to the flood. And God, uh, the text opens, says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Um, And so he sends the flood. But you do understand, don't you, that the flood didn't fix that. In fact, after the flood, in Genesis 8, uh, the Lord said in his heart, "I will never again curse the ground for man's sake." although although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, that's Genesis eight. We've barely gotten started. The flood's already happened, and guess what? It's still just spewing out evil. Ladies and gentlemen, I know you don't like to think about this, but you are so blasted selfish. You're just like me. We are so consumed with self-interest. Because you were born with a sinner's heart, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Until grace has at least put a bridle in our mouths. But the... The the first thing that people need to understand... You know, guys, um, everybody wants to tell you how good mankind is except the gospel except this book we are far more wicked than we ever dreamed and you know um, given the right set of circumstances it comes bursting to the front you know um I hate Christmas. You're supposed to laugh at that. Um, I'm, I'm really scroogish when it comes to Christmas. Because part of the problem is Black & Decker starts advertising all these new tools. And, and the tools that they're advertising are things that remind me that if anything breaks in my house, I can't fix it. I don't know how to fix it. And when something breaks in my house, I become a different human being. Because it so frustrates me. It's so, because I have no skills to fix anything. My wife has more skills. The only person with a toolbox in our house is my wife. Uh, She has an electric drill uh, that she won't let me touch. But my, my point simply is, guys, when, when, when something like that happens, it's I just get angry all over. And um, then you ought to see me drive. Mm. It, then some of that thing that I try to hide from you, every Sunday morning I try to hide it from you, comes out in the driver's seat. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we are born into this world ill-prepared to leave it. We are by nature sinful. And this is where the preaching of the law comes in, ladies and gentlemen. That's why to avoid the Old Testament is a huge mistake. We need to hear of the law. Because the law reminds us just how far we fall short. It acts as a tutor, Paul says, and we'll we'll talk about that later. But ladies and gentlemen, um, the whole history of of the Bible, from the ram that was caught in the thicket, you remember that story? Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is told to go sacrifice Isaac. He takes him up on a mountain. He raises the knife, and God stops him. And there, right over on the side, is a ram that's caught in the thicket. From Genesis 22 and the ram getting caught to the, in, in the thicket to the scapegoat in Leviticus 16. You know, I don't read the Old Testament because that Leviticus is just so boring. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible is found in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. From the, from the ram that's caught in the thicket to the scapegoat of the day of atonement to the cross itself the Bible teaches us that God must supply a remedy for our sin. And in a sense, it is his pleasure. Let me show you why I say that. Um, I want you, if you've got a Bible or a device that has a Bible in it, uh, go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Chapter 53. Another one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament is Isaiah 53. It's called the suffering servant. Um, But let let me refer you to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was his pleasure. Now, guys, at this point, I have to do something tangential. Um, I've done this probably six times in this room, but every time uh, it seems like somebody hadn't heard it before. I, I want you to see this. If you'll look at verse 10, the Lord, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You see that? Now keep your finger right there in Isaiah 53 and real quickly find Psalm 110. The most oft quoted Psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110. Now if you find Psalm 110 real quick, You'll notice that Psalm 110 opens with this statement. The Lord said to my Lord. You you see in there, there's only one, two, three, four, five, six words, and two of them are Lord. You see that. But they're different. You see there, one is all caps, and the other is capitalized. What the translators do, ladies and gentlemen, is when they come to the word, yod hey vav hey Yahweh. They always write it this way. All caps. So you'll see in, in, in Psalm one ten one, Yahweh is only found once. So now go back to Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord. Do you see that? There it is again. All caps. Because it's Yahweh. It pleased Yahweh to bruise him. God took pleasure in bruising him. Not the kind of sadistic sense of pleasure that he, I love to see my son die. But rather, if you'll notice, reading on um, uh, verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Yahweh shall see the labor of his son's soul and be satisfied. Um, Yahweh, his law, his holiness was satisfied. Every demand every demand that the Father has made has been met satisfied by Christ. Now guys let me read you that quote again. The Stott quote. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for men. The first assertion of the gospel is that you are far more wicked than you ever dreamed. The next assertion of the gospel is that in Christ you are far more loved than you ever dared hope. The father is pleased to crush him. He's substituting himself. That's the essence ladies and gentlemen of the gospel i'm going to illustrate it in just a second but guys you you gotta know that every other religion in in on the face of the planet stumbles over this issue of sin how to deal with it muslims hope to use all of their good deeds to um to outweigh their bad deeds judaism hopes to use their good deeds to outweigh their bad deeds Buddhism, Buddhism strives to extinguish all desire because desire itself is is sinful. Hindus, they seek ultimate purification through millions of rebirths. Christianity invites you to take all of that sin and bring it to Christ. Do you see, ladies and gentlemen, how starkly different is the message of the Christian gospel from every other message that is available that's called religious? The only religion that says that God substitutes himself for my sin is the Christian gospel. You know, one of the places that, that I love to just illustrate this um, or this whole idea of substitution, it's a story that I think you all know. Um, it's the story during the trial of Jesus, you know, um, uh, Jesus is ping pong back and forth between several people and, and he finally gets to, um, back to Pilate and, and Pilate, um, Pilate is trying looking for a way out. His wife says, don't touch this guy, you know. And, and so Pilate's trying to figure out, and he says, ah, I remember. <laughs> this time of year, I always let out one of those prisoners of my, um, uh, in, in jail, you know. And so he's thinking that the crowd is going to say, okay, um, let Jesus go. But, of course, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are out there working up the crowd saying, no, no, no. Now, as for Barabbas, you remember that story? By the way, did you ever know this? Barabbas. This word means son. You ever heard of Abba? Father. He's the son of the father. They asked for the son of the father. Unfortunately, they asked for the wrong son of the wrong father. But ladies and gentlemen, at that moment, Who deserved to die? Barabbas. Who deserved to walk? Jesus. But as the event unfolded, who died? The innocent one. Who walked? The guilty one. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what you call... Substitution. The innocent substituted for the guilty. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I think one of the reasons that that the Christian gospel doesn't move us more is because no one has ever told you how wicked you are, you are pathologically selfish. Aren't we? And you know what? The gospel is a message that tells us that the innocent has died in the place of the guilty. Just like you see it unfolding in John chapter 18. The gospel at its heart has to do with substitution. Can I read you that quote again? For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting, substituting himself for me. Now, there's, there's a whole lot of other detail into which we could go, and we will, will in a little bit because um, there's... But, guys, that's the, that's the heartbeat of the gospel. That's the thing that we're supposed to preach to the world. But that's also the thing that you're supposed to preach to yourself. You know, in the midst of my um, getting so angry that something broke in my house when I don't look exactly like the fine, refined preacher that I'm supposed to look like. When I've blown it, the thing that I need to tell myself or remind myself is of the gospel. I need to be reminded that as wicked as I am, and there it is, it came up again! God has substituted himself for me. The guilty died and the, excuse me, the innocent died and the guilty walked. Um, when, when, I'm, when I'm laying in bed at night and I am being tormented by my own conscience, you know, I teach a grace group. Um, we had our grace group uh, Sunday night and I'm a terrible grace group leader. Terrible. I'm I'm terrible at it. Because it's supposed to be this nice discussion, you know, my people and, you know, and, and, you know, I ask a question and they all, they wouldn't dream of saying anything, you know, and I can't, I can't drag words out of them, you know, they but, but anyway, we study Pilgrim's Progress and, um, There's, at chapter 5, Pilgrim has got this burden. He leaves the city of destruction with a burden on his back. And he goes through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and then he comes to chapter 5. And he he sees a cross. And his burden rolls off his back into a hole, never to be seen again. He's converted. But he's not converted until chapter 5. Burden's gone. And as I was sitting there Sunday night talking about the burden is gone, I won't tell you it is, but a man sitting to my left said, there's a whole lot to my burden. I mean, It was like he, like he just barfed it up. My burden is really big. So is yours. And you're going to get reminded of that sooner or later. Maybe it might be before you get home tonight. And so what you need to go back to is the essence of the gospel is that God has substituted himself for me. Because there's not another religion on the face of the planet that's going to tell you to deal with your sin like that. Nobody tells you that. Nobody except, Christian, except the Christian gospel. I want you to see it again. We've got about another 10 minutes. Let me show it to you. I want you to go to John chapter 6. This is just superb. At least, I think. You might think it's boring, but... Um, John chapter 26. Excuse me, John chapter 6. <clears throat> Um, are you there? In verse 28. Then they said to him, what shall we do <coughs> that we may work the works of God? Ladies and gentlemen, that is the question that every religion on the face of the planet is seeking to answer. How can I ultimately please the God's. How can I ultimately get right with God? And I'm telling you that the answers are pretty much the same on, at, at, at every turn for every religion. The, the answer goes something like this. Well, be a better person. Um, do penance. Fast. Go on a pilgrimage. Deny your body. you see how Jesus answered that? (laughs) What what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, you want to know what the work of God is? That you believe on him who you sent. You know, guys, um, every other religion on the face of the planet is performance-based. Um, they're all about people to doing enough things to satisfy God and to please Him so that they can be comfortable that He's going to be happy once they arrive. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that is a gospel that is cruel. Because I am left to spend the rest of my days wondering, Have I done enough? Um, Have I done it correctly? Um, You know, my son just died of throat cancer, and it was because we didn't do enough. Um, Christianity stands alone And says. I will provide. You know where that's found? Genesis 22. Christianity stands alone and says. Yeah. There is nothing you can do. Not no amount of labor that you can perform that would right yourself, but I will provide. Because I must, because there's not enough doings that you can perform to make up all. There's not enough that you can do to balance out just how wicked you are. I want to read you something, then we'll quit. There's another story. Um, a name that that might be familiar to you um, is the name George Whitfield. George Whitfield uh, came to America, came to the Middle Colonies, oh, in the 1740s, I want to say. Um, planted churches. In fact, if you go to South Carolina, you can still see monuments to George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a, a big friend of John Wesley's and um but uh, the, 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 his biography uh, was written by a guy the name of Arnold Dalamore, and it's just called George Whitfield but um dalamore's uh, biography of Whitfield describes him um as as being a man before he was converted as never was there a man more earnest to try and do the works that he thought would ultimately ride him with God. He was he was ordained in the Church of England. He was an Anglican. And, and throughout the course of his life, prior to his, his conversion, he he performed the strictest of religious life, at one point almost killing himself. I'm quoting now from the book. Um, and, and this is something that I think uh, that's coming from the mouth of George uh, Whitfield. He says, I began to fast twice a week for 36 hours together, prayed many times a day, and received the sacrament every Lord's day. I fasted myself almost to death all the 40 days of Lent, during which I made it a point of duty never to go less than three times a day to public worship, besides seven times a day to private prayers. Yet I knew no more that I was to be born a new creature in Christ Jesus, than if I had never been born at all. Do you see, guys, after all of that... By the way, you know what the Muslim is doing, don't you, with his five prayer times a day? Same thing. Same thing. Um, But after all of this exertion, after all of this performance, it never quieted his soul. Um, Dalimore says that when he was near death from his religious efforts, someone handed him a copy of Henry Skugel's The Life of God and the Soul of Man. I've mentioned that book in here before. In fact, I mentioned it back in the fall. Um, um, and Skugel, or Whitfield read Skugel's book. After he read the book, he says this, and it's, it's brief. He says, God soon showed me that true religion was a union of the soul with God And Christ formed within us. And a ray of divine light was instantaneously darted in upon my soul. (laughs) He writes later, God was pleased to remove the heavy load of performance-based religiosity to enable me to lay hold of his dear Son by a living faith. With what joy... Joy unspeakable was my soul filled. Gang, um, I was in a conversation with a woman that I have known for years just recently. And I, I, I've told you a couple of these stories before, but this woman uh, I've known for years. She has been a churchman all of her life. Um, all of her life. I met her, I've probably known her the second half of her life, um, but um, she, she came to me because she has, she's, she's younger than I am, but she has a fear of death. She's kind of, kind of obsessed with the fear of death, and this is a woman who has spent all of her life, and some of it in this one, Um. In the church. And she said to me recently. I just don't know if I'm worthy enough. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the other gospel. That's the cruel one. That's the one that will drive you to despair. The one about God substituting himself for me and then enabling me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith? That's the one you want. Uh, you um, You can be wrong about a lot of things, ladies and gentlemen. Don't be wrong about that. Our Father, um, I thank you for the privilege that is mine to try and explain it simply and clearly and, and um, forcefully. But, Father, um, illuminating the heart and mind is something that is completely beyond the, uh, the abilities of any man. And unless you give eyes to see and ears to hear, This gospel will go right in one ear and out the other. And then we will live the rest of our Christian experience wondering whether we've done enough, whether we're worthy enough, whether we fasted correctly, whether we prayed correctly, whether we repented enough. And that will by no means comfort us in the dark night of our soul. But what will comfort us is that the Lord is pleased to crush him and is satisfied by the finished work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Sinners as wicked as we are. Our Father, if you have brought anyone among us this evening who has not yet seen first their sin and then the beauty of the gospel, that God has seen fit to make provision. And that provision is himself. Show them that now. Open their eyes that they might see the wonder and the marvel of the Christian gospel. Do it for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you and good night.